All right. I am now joined by Kubo Rizinski, uh better known for This is Revolution viewers and listeners as uh, Deep State Kuba uh, for something that he's done here several times, but it has been a little while, uh, which is to um, talk about what's going on with the, uh, the war in Ukraine. So, Kuba, how are you doing today? I'm doing uh, as uh, well as can be reasonably expected, I suppose. <laughs> Fairest way uh, of describing that. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that's what Eastern Europeans say when they're ecstatic, so um, fair enough. V and, and it's been, um, the war is settled into this fairly slow tempo, a kind of grinding um, artillery uh, slog in Bakhmut being the, the main action in the front line, as well as occasional um, bombing or uh, artillery strikes uh, elsewhere uh, by both sides, uh, including uh, Russian positions uh, by Ukrainians and, and similarly Russian attacks on Ukrainian sites. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you were saying? Um, the, I think that the sort of biggest news news has been the different uh, attributions of the Nord Stream pipeline attack, which after the publication of uh, Cy Hirsch's article uh, detailing how uh, the U.S. was in, uh, involved in the destruction of the pipeline. Uh. There's been the more recent leaks suggesting that it was a group of it was a Ukrainian spring break boat trip that uh, got a little out of hand. <laughs> yeah, I see the summary that uh, it was like Ukrainians, but it wasn't ordered by the uh, the Ukrainian government. Yeah, you know, just, just just some enthusiasts. You know, it was uh, the maritime equivalent of that pop can uh, pop can balloon club that uh, got shot down over Alaska. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, me and the guys got together and uh, and blew up. The, One drinks uh, too many. You know how it is. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so so this is, I mean, you know, for anybody whose memory goes back along within a week or two, um, the the party line for a while was like that Nord Stream was an inside job, which I have to say never made a lot of sense, um, you know. But you know, you you did see a lot of people who were presented as authoritative on TV and didn't particularly claim to have any evidence for it, you know, saying that they thought that that was probably uh, what had uh, the, happened. Oh, the Russians did it to themselves. Because, um, you know, they're nefarious that way. Um, because it clearly goes against any type of visible Russian interest that must serve some kind of invisible, ultra-nefarious uh, Russian plot. Despite the fact that, you know, and for me, it was 
the the treat by uh, the tweet by Reddick Sikorsky was absolutely dispositive. Um, the jubilation and the direct crediting to the United States by somebody who's a real transatlantic insider, former uh, defense minister of Poland, um, big time Atlantic Council, Brookings, uh, NGO figure, he would know, um, he would think it's great. And he was doing an end zone dance before somebody told him to knock it off. But that tweet is out there for posterity if anyone wants to look it up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose to uh, to try to be charitable here that the idea that, you know, even if it wasn't exactly uh, Spring Breakers, that uh, the idea that there could be within, you know, the military and intelligence operations of Ukraine that there, you know, could be the left hand knoweth not what the right hand is doing sort of situations doesn't seem crazy in itself. I mean, that there is that like, um, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, it's not the world's most centralized state. That's, um, be that as it may, the yeah. infrastructure and expertise needed to take, because this isn't stealing garden gnomes or right. even a, a car bombing a cafe. You need uh, to infiltrate into a secured maritime area. You have to uh, be able to conduct uh, engineering and demolition operations under 60 to 80 meters of water. There's a lot of specialized equipment that would go into an operation like that and not very many people who could execute it. It's certainly conceivable that um, that expertise exists outside of central control in Ukraine or in Poland or um, on the international black market. Uh. But it would be more than receipts for a yacht rental. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it always, I mean, look, I, you know, been trying to be uh, sort of see how these most recent claims could possibly be true, but I mean, like on a larger level, it just seems like um, the, uh, you know, I mean, Nord Stream pipeline was blown up by uh, someone who had both an interest in doing that, uh, that, you know, it, it served their interests somehow and also had the ability to do it. And that does, you know, uh, that does tend to narrow it down um, to, you know, Ukraine and its close allies, uh, whether they, you know, whatever the United States, uh, you know, level of, of, uh, of involvement uh, was, which, you know, is also, you know, the immediate reaction to the Cy Hirsch article in mainstream spaces in the United States was like, ah, crazy old Cy Hirsch. Yeah, the, I wouldn't be surprised if the Ukrainian contribution was limited to taking the blame. The, uh, at, at this point, too, the 
NATO militaries and Ukrainian forces have had a significant amount of experience working together. The special forces operatives, trainers, uh, intelligence officers, they know their Ukrainian counterparts. And it would be very easy to blend uh, American expertise with a few Ukrainian names that are uh, that might be uh, some paper identities that might have been created to be burnt anyway. Of course, I don't think we there is conclusive um, evidence to, to to definitively state um, what happened, but. Certainly, mm -hmm. the Cy Hirsch um, account is no worse than anything that's been offered by the mainstream press or officialdom, and the those accounts are uh, weak, uh, some even laughable, like the uh, contention that this was uh, Russia blowing up its own pipeline, presumably in order to reduce its leverage on <laughs> Europe because it gets more points if it conquers Ukraine on a higher difficulty setting. Putin's doing an Iron Man run. Oh, um, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, that does sound like something that would motivate them. Um, yeah, well, speaking of conquering Ukraine, I mean, we kind of wanted to pull back a little bit and think about the larger shape of this because we just recently passed uh, the, uh, the one-year anniversary of uh, the beginning of the war, which in, uh, you know, a grizzly little bit of time in as a few weeks before the 20-year uh, uh, anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, lots of reminders of good decisions that uh, powerful states make. But um, but I do, uh, I mean, I I do want to just just kind of on a view from ten thousand feet kind of level talk about this a little bit because you know I I think you know one of the reasons I've I've had you on to do these is that you know most Americans you know I don't entirely exclude myself from this um, you know although. I try to do better. Uh, most Americans who have opinions about this um, just don't know a lot about it, right? That they have a so I see a lot of uh, a lot of time. I'll notice certainly on like social media. You know, when you you talk about uh, you know you express opinions about it, uh, you'll see people reacting in ways that really made a lot more sense to me this time last year than they do now. And, and I just kind of want to sort of double check my general sense of how all this has gone, because it seems like um, in, uh, in the, uh, oh, uh, yeah, Kuba, if you could just mute yourself until you, uh, uh, until you respond, but some kind of background noise there, but anyway, uh, you know, it's, it seems to me, right, that like in the, um, like initially, you know, the, the stated Russian war goals were, you know, like conquering the whole country. Uh, 
and you know doing you know whatever they said originally you know denazified demilitarized uh ukraine uh that uh, which you know whatever that insane combination of words actually meant you know i mean like it, it seemed like it would involve actual you know regime change and then due to whatever combination of their uh you know their own initial incompetence you know supply lines and all that and and the successes of of ukrainian uh you know then and ukraine's own successes and obviously the um the fact that their you know entire ukrainian military budget has been topped up from nothing many times over uh since this started you know with u.s northern western aid you know for all those reasons it seems like the original Russian war goals have been off the table for like a really long time at this point in, in the war. And, you know, my sense at least is that the, you know, the sort of uh, remaining thing that's really being fought about is, you know, where the eventual ceasefire line, whatever that happens, you know, whether it's like next month or in 10 years is going to, to be, but even in terms of like kind of, um, you know, broader questions about, you know, like broader questions about, um, you know, what the sort of fundamental shape of an eventual settlement is. I'm not, I'm not sure how much is, um, how much is really still up for grabs at this point, you know, in the war, right? I mean, like you'll, you'll talk, um, you know, you'll, you'll hear people say these sort of insane things about, you know, how Ukraine needs to keep fighting until they reconquer like Crimea. But, you know, I, I don't think anybody really thinks that thinks that's going to happen. And, um, and in the, uh, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I guess I don't even know, what the, uh, uh, like at this point, you know, like, 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 uh, how like Putin's cronies are even quite represented Russia's, uh, Russia's remaining war goals at this point. So like, I, I mean, like apart from kind of the question that we were talking about a little bit last time you and I spoke about this, which was sort of the extreme political difficulties and, uh, in getting anybody to sit down because sort of everybody's motive, everybody's incentives right now are pointing in, in in the direction of continued fighting, you know, but like just in terms of like what's realistically up for grabs, I mean, like what could realistically change between now and whenever the war does end? I mean, is your sense different than that? I, I think that there's more, uh, that the realm of, uh, possibility is actually, um, much greater and darker than, um, this uh, because i think that from a kind of rational perspective um state to state yeah the ukrainians and the russians are bleeding each other they can't continue like this um and the likelihood of a unilateral breakthrough by one side which allows them to dictate terms to the other which is what it would take at this point to um, reach anybody's putative public goals, um, that that's unlikely to happen. But both the Russian and Ukrainian um, 
political systems are also under considerable stress uh, domestically. The possibility exists that either state uh, might collapse, and that brings about the end of the war. Uh, after all, um, if you consider the way that Russia ended World War One, for instance, it wasn't because of um, anything that happened on the front line, but the pressure of the war was sufficient to uh, undermine the, the czarist government. That political instability then uh, broke apart the system of military and civilian infrastructure that kept the Russian Empire uh, going. And it was the uh, domestic uh, revolution in uh, plural revolutions in uh, the late empire and you know the Bolshevik revolution against the provisional government that finally settled the question. It's hard to know uh, how secure uh, Putin is um, within Russia because so much of the politics of an autocracy uh, take the form of court intrigue, bureaucratic maneuvering that's by definition invisible to outsiders. Um, outsiders within Russia, let alone foreign observers, right. I guess. That's and everything um, that I've described about Russia is true uh, a fortiori for um, Ukraine. The coalition behind Zelensky is unstable and includes a variety of very contradictory elements. The um, he is personally very popular and he's very good at mobilizing both domestic and international support. So at this stage, he's useful to everyone involved. And that that tends to be a, a very beneficial characteristic if you're a leader in his position. Right. If you think about um, uh, Diem in um, South Vietnam, when there, uh, when his government was um, started to be perceived of as part of the problem by his American backers, it didn't end well for him. And we don't know what the level of cohesion and the, the eternal stability of the Ukrainian state is. So far, you're fighting a popular war against a, a literal invader. The uh, Ukrainian, mobile, uh, Ukrainian nationalism, Eastern European nationalism in general, is a very powerful uh, ideological uh, claim to authority. So uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of potential uh, safety valves for Zelensky. Right? There's a, the Ukrainian people are uh, 
I'm not going to say inured, but in a way that a lot of Westerners will have difficulty imagining when the recent history of your country contains so much bloodshed, sacrifice, and conflict, faced with a war like this, the attitude of people can, um, can become resigned and determined. Um, and I think that's what we've seen. Um, the blank check offered by NATO for military uh, material is also just one component. The fact that um, other Western countries have accepted large numbers of Ukrainian refugees, um, Canada among them, uh, but most significantly the EU member states, that also helps reduce the pressure uh, in uh, Ukraine itself because there is a refuge, there is some place to go for um, some of the uh, more vulnerable groups that would otherwise uh, right, be not only suffering themselves, uh, but in the way of the military effort. You don't necessarily want to think about uh, hundreds of thousands of displaced civilians as you're working out the logistic needs of uh, an armored division or um, the forces that you actually need to make a strategic difference. And that uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of Ukrainians are able to access uh, some kind of safety and support uh, abroad that also helps Ukraine's position. Beyond the practical matter of having um, some of the civilian population uh, looked after by um, in the outside, the uh, refugees are a great vector for uh, mobilizing sympathy for uh, continued support of the war in Western countries. Last weekend or two weekends ago, uh, there was a sizable uh, rally for um, uh, Ukraine in downtown Vancouver. Uh, on a Saturday afternoon, I walked by. I could hear singing. The library square was packed. Uh, they had loudspeakers. It was very well um, organized, and you had people streaming around the location for blocks. The next day, there was a similar um, protest uh, in support of the uh, opposition in Iran, which uh, had a third to half as many people participating, less press, etc. And I think that it does make a big difference that people who uh, have been victims of the conflict themselves are some of the spokesmen, uh, spokespeople uh, making the case for continued um, Western support for um, prosecuting the war. Right. That makes sense. Um, 
Although, you know, I, I also do wonder, I mean, you're talking about the, the kind of uh, power of, of nationalism uh, and, and the kind of willingness of people to be, uh, you know, that kind of resignation, you know, to long conflict, uh, you know, but not that this undermines that, I, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of a separate issue, but I have a, um, I was wondering if you saw the, uh, the economist uh, earlier this month put out a, uh, an article uh, about the uh, enforcement of, uh, of the draft in Ukraine. Uh, that's uh, uh, was pretty striking. It was, it was talking about how, you know, cause like the, you know, earlier in the, the war, uh, the draft works, you know, pretty much the way that it has in like, you know, the United States when we've had a draft that the uh, people, you know, you'd like get a letter at your house and, you know, whatever. And, uh, um, and even of course, very early in the war that the, that like uh, the, um, like people were, um, you know, the sort of wave of volunteers was, was, uh, was like much greater than you know people get drafted anyway uh but uh but according to this article in the economist um they they've gotten um like uh the ukrainian military has gotten a lot more sort of uh extreme about how the draft is uh is being enforced like uh they're talking about people like literally being, you know, scooped up at like shopping malls and stuff like that. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, military funerals was mentioned. There's a thing about how people don't want to go skiing because uh, they're, because they're afraid of, uh, of the, you know, people from the, you know, conscription office, uh, sort of peering around the, uh, the, the slopes. Um, so uh, I'd also, I don't know. I'd also say yeah. that if you're, um, I mentioned the displaced Ukrainians uh, in Canada and especially in Europe, and again, especially in Europe, uh, if you're a military-aged male, say in your um, early 20s, um, able-bodied, fit, and you're living in Warsaw or Lublin, as a Ukrainian refugee, um, you'll get a lot of side-eye from uh, Polish people being like, so, <laughs> why are you not fighting? Right. Are you a coward? Or dot, dot, dot. Right. And um, the, the traditionalism... Uh, Eastern European societies tend to be uh, more traditionally oriented when it comes to gender roles, for instance, and yeah. also to um, respect for military service. And here you see part of the consequences of that. Um, there is an expectation that in what could be described as a patriotic war, um, anyone who is able to fight uh, really uh, it goes beyond a personal choice. Right. It's not uh, a matter of, well, 
Um, I had priorities other than military service, I think is how Dick Cheney put it when he was evading the Vietnam draft. Uh-huh. That, that won't fly. And in uh, Ukraine itself, um, going together with the intensification of the war uh, has been a more robust and coercive uh, function for the internal security apparatus. You, they now can impress you if um, you are eligible for the draft and aren't serving. They'll shut you down um, if you're publishing or broadcasting or tweeting uh, information that's uh, or views that are critical of the government. It's kind of um, well established that this is a extraordinary situation and all the niceties of civil rights uh, have been uh, put aside, um, which is understandable. I mean, uh, yeah. Abraham Lincoln had to, um, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus right. and introduced other means that were considered to be repressive uh, in order to effectively fight the Civil War. Uh, yeah. But it creates, um, first of all, it undermines claims to uh, democratic legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates some very convenient discretional powers that um, political leaders are going to be loath to surrender. And it also, you have to worry about who it is that's staffing and um, carrying out these security functions. Um, it's going to be groups that are fanatically um, committed to the war that okay. are um, acceptable to NATO um, and Ukraine's other security uh, partners, especially the United States. And they'll likely have um, their own ideological and domestic agenda, which I'm guessing is more Slava Ukraina, Slava Geroi, and less give me liberty and give me death. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I should also say, like, to put this in perspective, I mean, you, you and I have talked about this before, but I, I don't know if we talked about it on air, um, that, you know, even before... Uh, the invasion where, you know, it's it's not confusing why, you know, civil liberties would suffer under circumstances like this. But, you know, even before the invasion, um, you know, Ukraine was, you know, definitely a much more democratic country than Russia, if that's the standard, but uh, not really especially democratic by like Western European uh, standards. I mean, this is um, like, I remember a little while ago, the Washington Post ran this fact check of something that Tucker Carlson had said on his show where, where he said that you know, Ukraine's uh, not a democracy and uh, their ruling was uh, needs context. And uh, they, and the, the tone of the, the tone of the fact check was like, 
you know, Tucker Carlson is awful. This is a horrible thing to say. And, you know, he is awful, but they have a, but, um, you know, and they, and they did nail him on some of his, his hypocrisies, you know, like, like his, you know, his sort of chubbiness with, you know, Victor Hungry and all that stuff. But in the, uh, but in the course of the article, they actually referenced these Freedom House rankings of, um, of how democratic various countries are, which said that, you know, this is before the invasion, uh, said that Ukraine is uh, about in the middle of the pack as far as post-Soviet nations, which is, you know, I think uh, not a great place to be. In your uh, face, you Kazakhstan. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and, you know, and they and mentioned like a State Department report on you know on uh, uh, sort of uh, the um, uh, repression and human rights you know, abuses in, in Ukraine. You know, and again before the before the invasion. So you know, it's it's not um, you know these things are on a spectrum, and it's not starting at a great point in the spectrum, and and it's definitely uh, it's definitely getting worse. Uh, which is, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, I, I am curious before I, uh, before I let you go. And if anybody, you know, if anybody wants to call in, we'll, we'll take the call before we go, but they have a, but if not, um, in, you know, you mentioned this earlier, like you touched on briefly, but I, I am interested in the, um, in the part about, um, uh, Russian politics as far as all this goes and i know it's a little bit of an unfair question because you have to uh uh you um, you, know, you have to speculate right i mean like it's, it's totally I, I mean on some level it might be just like unknowable because i mean as you said earlier wow. I mean, even ordinary russians don't really know you know what's uh I'll give you my best completely baseless guess. Sure, yeah. That's what I'm asking for. Um, and so just a, a view of, of what's going on um, domestically in Russia. Uh-huh. So the... Um, the same tendencies that I mentioned strengthening... Uh, Ukrainian resolve in the war, uh, namely uh, this kind of grim familiarity with the costs of conflict um, and this long um, tradition, both like uh, officially um, supported and just part of the, the folk culture of um, the country, uh, there's a lot of, you know, fight in uh, Russia. There's um, an anxiety about tapping into that uh, nationalist tendency because uh, at this point, it's partly due to the fact that um, anti-war voices are um, stifled immediately and not just by officialdom either but if you think about you know you're given a high school if uh in the u.s if the football team is in the finals and for some reason there's this 
asshole over here being like, football is bad because it causes concussions. And <laughs> have, you, have you heard about the union disputes with NFL players? Uh, and imagine how the jocks and cheerleaders and those who take their cues from them uh, would respond to that kind of criticism. Uh, so uh, society, to a certain extent, polices itself on support for the war. The danger is that you send uh, conscripts to a meat grinder and they come back as corpses. Uh, they have mothers, grandmothers that will start asking questions. And if it's the villainous Ukrainians and the satanic NATO pedophiles, that's one thing. But uh -huh. if you send them in with a shovel, like his great-grandpa in Stalingrad, um, if the uniforms um, haven't come through, if there's issues with um, leadership or logistics, then those are points where you can have a very dangerous type of populist mobilization. Um, and there are more aggressive uh, nationalist uh, figures that could potentially seize on it to make the, the argument not that Putin is a psycho and we need to um, we need to to smarten up, but uh, Putin is inefficiently being a psycho, <laughs> and we need to get our shit together. Get our get someone in there who um, will you know keep the trains running on time. And uh, so, if you um, one of the stories around Bakhmut, which is turning into this kind of mini Stalingrad. Uh, uh, is that uh, the Wagner Group has been uh, really the vanguard of Russian offensives in the city. And a lot of that comes down to the same logic that created this burgeoning uh, private military contractor uh, ecosystem for American conflict. If Wagner guys die, no one, no one cares. Right. Uh, the um, at this point, it's impossible for the um, the Wagner security company to disentangle itself from the Ukraine war or from its place as a kind of Russian auxiliary force. Mm hmm. They're not very happy about it. Um, they understand that um, they're not only liable to face the highest risk missions, but at this point, uh, one of their commanders has strongly implied that uh, failures for them to receive adequate materiel, ammunition, logistical support might be uh, sabotage, not necessarily ideological anti-Russian sabotage, but a kind of ruthless internal um, Russian military bureaucratic fight where um, 
if Bakhmut doesn't fall, uh, if the uh, promised spring offensive fizzles out before it starts, uh, somebody will need to go down for it, and Wagner may be being prepared as a scapegoat. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. That makes sense. Uh, well, this is fascinating. Oh, actually, let me, uh, before we go, uh, we do have a call. We, uh, we, we had one earlier from, uh, come guzzler 69. We seem to have lost. So Mr. Come guzzler, you know, if you're, uh, uh, if you do want to call back in, you know, be my guest. Love Colin. You could say stuff like that. Maybe so, busy uh, doing something. Ah, uh, there is that. There is that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let me, uh, uh, let's take Gator before I let you go. Uh, Gator, what's on your mind? Hi, gents. Um, if we look at the year's worth, and if not preceding, even preceding that, uh, worth of narrative about the um, war, and we let's just keep it to the Western narrative. Just huge amounts and increasing amounts of it don't add up and they don't even pass their own back test. So let's take claims that Russia is over early on, even, even intelligence cutouts like Bellingcat were making claims in March, 2022 that, that Russia had overextended itself and was about to run out of ammo. And that, claim has been made repetitively on a nearly month-by-month basis, particularly in the first half of the war, and it's still being made now. Not true. Okay? Why, why, why are our um, outlets constantly making the wrong guess about the amount of ammo that w- Russia has when we are the G1 nation and the G20 nations who've got the best military intel and spying capability in the world? That doesn't add up. If you look at the way that we present information just on Nord Stream. This is laughable. So what we've done is we've screwed ourselves over on narrative because not only have our leaders literally telegraphed that they were going to perform this act multiple times, okay, in a sinister in very sinister and threatening ways, which are all on video, which is just dumb. Why would you why would you tell anyone you're about to commit a crime, go and do it, and then get trapped in your own lies, which is where we are now? <clears throat> That's bizarre. If we something that people are not talking about with Nord Stream is the true scale of the event. So let's it doesn't matter who did it, right? If we just park who did it for a second, the scale of the Nord Stream event is actually as big as this. It's a criminal terrorist attack against Russia. It's a criminal terrorist attack against Germany, Denmark, and Sweden, who are all, if I'm correct, the 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 actual other 49% owners of the pipeline. But then it's also a criminal terrorist attack against every single EU nation who re- required economically any of the feed of gas that came through it. Right? That that puts this event as the largest single terrorist attack against the largest number of countries in one go. Now, economically, that is the, the narrative, the guess, the, the story that we've put out doesn't make sense anyway from first principles about it being blamed on Russia. And it was instantly blamed on Russia by us when it happened. Where is that narrative now? We have actively acknowledged that it definitely wasn't Russia 
because the Swedes have said that, the Germans and the, and I think the Danes have said it based on their quote unquote investigation, which nobody can see. The Russians can't access. Okay, and essentially, if they're locked out of the site, then that means that evidence can be tampered with. The, the, it's obviously not a, a clear, transparent in, in, um, investigation. That's odd. What, what, what have we got to hide? And then our own narrative now goes, it wasn't the Russians. Okay, we didn't do it. But uh, somebody in some a pro-Ukrainian group must have done it. But we don't know who and we haven't got any evidence. Right. OK, so. So we're basically saying that we know enough in the world to tell you immediately who did it. Then we have to go, oh, we don't really know. We got that wrong. We backpedal. And now we don't really know who did it. This doesn't even stand up to even the even an idiot's level of uh, scrutiny. Right. And the reality is that. We don't know what else Cy Hirsch knows. So he's, we're just playing this game of poker now. The narrative versus, versus any account of, of Nord Stream is trapped because all we're, we've done is create a false narrative at the beginning. Then Cy Hirsch has come along and said, you know what? Here's, here's a version of reality that needs to be taken into account. Cause if anything that Cy Hirsch has said is true, we're in deep shit. And then. We have been stupid enough to release, to, to go silent, right? And didn't just do these stupid denials, flat out denials where you attack Cy Hirsch's credibility. So that's the ad hominem, okay? Which is a classic, classic um, misleading approach. And the same thing is happening with the Twitter files, funnily enough. Let's attack the man, not the content. And then we issue a, a crazy narrative that doesn't stack up. And now the problem is that we're in a poker game with Cy Hirsch and all Cy Hirsch needs to do is release something else that's provable, that contradicts or shows up that our current narrative of Nord Stream is false. And then he might have more stuff. So we will be forced to react to whatever Cy Hirsch next publishes. And then if we if we react with another lie that's provable by another thing that Cy Hirsch says, then this collapses. And then, I mean, it's already collapsing. And then the situation the West is in is in admitting that the US and, and Norway, if, if Cy Hirsch's story is true, did it. Or it could even be, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the Brits, actually, that were heavily involved in this as well, somehow. Or they even had prior knowledge. But there's one other thing about the Nord Stream attack that is being said. And it is this. Any nation that can, committed that attack knew that it would have massive ramifications for the entire international gas market and energy markets. And that means that those nations were involved in the largest insider trading fraud ever. That's how big Nord is. And, and funnily enough, why is it that the US or the Western press has not described the full scale of the crime? Because if it was Russia that did it, you would want to have, have, have said all of this to basically blame Russia for the world's largest real time, i.e. whilst the, the efforts get, whilst the war's prosecuting, real time false flag attack that is a criminal terrorist attack against the entire European bloc and the world's energy markets. That's the scale of that. And we've we can't we don't have the competence to lie our way through it. And that's yeah. That's just Nord Stream. And I could go on about the, about the rest of the war like this. I won't. 
but that is that, that and when you're when you're when you're facing a nation or a group of nations that are prepared to lie to you as citizens to this extent and they are also prepared to com commit attacks against their own citizens interests to this scale why would you ever believe anything that your nation states are telling you about anything in the state of the world all right i'm gonna give uh i'm gonna give kuba a uh, chance to respond to all that um the i'm i don't want to sound too glib about yeah. this um because what you say is true um i i don't find myself getting too exercised about it because having uh, been around the sort of foreign policy apparatus uh, long enough, I don't expect anything different. And the idea that it might be consequential to the people who uh, make decisions around things like the Nord Stream attack that they would be undermining public trust in democratic institutions or they would be uh, caught in a uh, an act of international terrorism that there would be uh, some blowback that affects them as a result of this but without that accountability without some mechanism to translate that um, exposure of serious malfeasance into some kind of sanctions, then it doesn't even enter their calculus. The, in a lot of ways, the um, elevation of Donald Trump as a Republican standard bearer at the January 6th uh, riot in uh, the U.S. Capitol, all of this gave new life to uh, what had previously been called information operations and had been focused uh, largely on trying to manipulate a public opinion in target countries abroad. Now that uh, infrastructure is being deployed against domestic populations in the West. And honestly, since there isn't much um, blowback with it, you have um, more to worry about um, with Republicans uh, scoring points and uh, using the uh, specter of a giant uh, dark Biden uh, boogeyman that is going to manipulate everybody's minds through Twitter. That's potentially a risk, but the nature of U.S. politics is such that even if um, the security apparatus now in Democratic hands hadn't done that, they would still be accused of it. So I think that trust was already in a crisis point uh, before the 
uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, when it comes to Western nations, especially, you know, what some people call the deep state, what some people might refer to as like a, the Atlanticist um, organizations in Washington, Brookings, the Atlantic Council, etc. Um, and this may exaggerate it, but I don't see a enough of a change in the uh, let's call them key performance indicators that matter to the uh, mid and upper level management inside the deep state for them to, to think that anything's gone wrong. Uh, things are basically working pretty well. The, they don't have to worry about uh, legal consequences because when the United States conducts violations of international law, no one is ever punished. That precedent is very firmly established and it will continue to protect everyone involved in that decision. Um, the American public, uh, if it discovers that they've been lied to about Nord Stream, then they'll just add that to a very lengthy list. Everyone's got one about the things that the government has lied to them about. Um, so without, without challenging any of the things that you say about the, the consequences and the scope, the enormity of this act, um, it's not going to be seen as a mistake problem since um, there's not going to be any negative consequences that flow from it. Well, the strategic effect, cutting off Russia's ability to sell oil, um, sell gas rather to um, Western European markets, uh, it worked, succeeded, worked like a charm. So, um, unfortunately, that's that's the way that I see it. Yeah, well, on that grim note, uh, thank you, uh, thank you so much for uh, your time uh, this afternoon, uh, Cuba. Um, the uh, people should uh, should check uh, check you out on uh, on this is revolution. Uh, what uh, what days are you typically on there? Um, lately, it's been Wednesdays, uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays are um, when. I'm most frequently on it. All right. So Wednesdays and Thursdays on uh, on This Is Revolution. Uh, go uh, go check that out. Uh, I am going to be uh, back here, uh, not on Sunday. Usually I always do these on Sunday, but I'm going to be traveling this Sunday. So I'm going to be back here on Colin on uh, 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 Thursday, actually, with Stefan Bertram Lee to talk about uh, an article, uh, Money Over Moralism. So uh, do check that out. That's already scheduled. I'll see people tomorrow night uh, on the main show on YouTube. I am finally back to that after the last couple of weeks. Um, so uh, really looking forward to talking about uh, to Justin Clark about his article about the Church of Scientology. Uh, so uh, I will uh, will see people then. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you, Gabe.